Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura, and I just have a few things before I get started today. Um, I did post something on Instagram about sending me spooky stories, and this is open to any real interpretation. If you've got a story about a camping trip you took or something weird that you saw in a house that you lived in or basically anything related to Colorado, um, send it to me. Send it to coloredredpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media sites that I'm on. Um, I also want to add that if you happen to know anybody that I'm talking about or you have something to add to the story or you have a correction to make, I am going to start a segment at the end of every episode where I will air some of the things that people send to me because people have sent me some stuff about how they knew somebody or pretty much anything. And I like to give people the opportunity to share their side of the story, to share their memories about somebody, and to really involve the community in different crimes that I'm talking about that happen in this community. So that's just open for everybody. Please feel free and open to send me stuff, uh, whatever you want to do. I'd also like to remind everybody briefly about my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash coloredredpodcast. And for just $1 per month, you'll get a sticker from me. It's a cool vinyl sticker, totally waterproof, and a handmade card. So that's open for everybody as well for just $1 per month. I have an historical episode for you guys today. This one's rather a really complex web of stories spanning multiple decades. What I'm going to describe to you is the Society of the Black Hand as it specifically relates to Colorado. My information comes largely from a book called Mountain Mafia by Betty L. Alt and Sandra K. Wells, two authors who have done extensive research on crime in Colorado, and I use one of their other books quite frequently. I'm going to be discussing the earlier days of the Black Hand, and at least today, I'm not going to be going really any further into the Smalden family or anything from that saga of the Colorado mob. I have a whole other book on that, and I'll be doing uh, just a standalone episode on the Smaldens in the future. I also just want to warn you all that this story features just a lot of Italian names that I will probably butcher at least a little bit, so bear with me on that. I'm going to try my best. The Society of the Black Hand that I'll be referring to has many forms all across the United States and even the world, and its most recognizable form is that of the Italian mafia or mob or gangs or whatever word you want to use. Um, There have been different societies called that that are in no way related to the Italian mob, but the one I'm talking about is the Italian version. In Italian, the Black Hand is La Mano Nera. And the Black Hand was primarily started as an extortion racket. Members would send a threatening letter to some moneyed member of society telling them that they would kill them or their family or do any number of other unwanted acts unless the victim paid them money, either in one lump sum or in regular installments paid to them. This is a racket that started in Italy and it made its way to New York City, Chicago, and most major U.S. cities. What's little known is that it also made its way to the American frontier, and even into much smaller communities, some form of this racket began um, all over the country. I'll also point out that not all Italian mafias were even one and the same, but most are loosely related in the business dealings that they do. What I mean is there wasn't one big boss of all of them, 
in the United States that they all answered to. There wasn't organization on any level that made the group a completely singular entity. Many entities broke off, traveled to new states, started their own exploitation of those areas to their liking, and one of these areas was Colorado, particularly the southern part. Now, I know I've described a lot of early Colorado history for you guys and painted Colorado as this real rough and tough western frontier town. You had miners, you had animal skin hat wearing drunks, you had dapper businessmen drinking in saloons, you had women who controlled brothels and were among the richest citizens in the city. But one thing that's often left out when discussing the bloody history of the Front Range is the Colorado mob. Now, I'm not particularly interested myself in mafia-related crime. It's sort of one of those um, one-dimensional reactionary kind of crimes, you know, like a drug deal gone bad, a revenge for the revenge of someone else, someone's brother got killed, someone's sister, a power struggle. And this is definitely, you know, because of Hollywood, but it all feels really Hollywood to me. And I can't quite pinpoint why I feel that way, but that's just how I feel the way about mafia-related crime. The Colorado mob, the Black Hand of Colorado, is a little bit different in that it's this incredibly gritty story. And it involves a number of horrific and borderline pointless murders that were rarely ever solved, if ever. Um, The other thing is that it's really difficult to separate What crimes in Colorado were actually done by the Black Hand, and which ones were done by amateur criminals who just used the name Black Hand as leverage? Southern Colorado wasn't alone as it entered Black Hand hysteria in the early 1900s. Most other cities at this time struggled to separate real gang activity from small-time threats using the name of the Black Hand. And these are some of the small town crimes that falsely used the name of the Black Hand in extortion letters from the supposed Black Hand. So here's some examples. Local competing businesses threatening each other. Desperate wives extorting ex-husbands after a divorce. Neighbors in land disputes. Political rivals, religious rivals. Pretty much anyone who was in a tight spot and desperate enough. And sometimes signing something with the Black Hand was even used as a joke. The amassing hysteria over the Black Hand was even called out as a myth in a 1909 article in the Cosmopolitan stating, It is not, and never has been, a society. It knows no chieftain, no scale of spoiled division, no sacred oath. It has no meeting places, consequently holds no meetings. It is but a name for a brand of crime peculiar to Italian crooks, and it is successful because... It's South Italian victims and their inborn dread of extortionists. So there's the Cosmopolitan laying it out that they don't think that the Black Hand ever truly existed as a singular racket, but was more just a scare tactic used by nearly everybody. So the Cosmopolitan was absolutely right. It was successful, but it wasn't really organized. It was an idea. It was a type of crime that preyed upon the weaknesses of whatever community it was in. The threats, the extortion letters were often not followed through, but when they were, it was bloody. And it almost always involved Italian thugs. The murder associated with the black hand as a society or gang or a loosely related concept or a myth was very real. 
Newspapers all the way from Trinidad to Denver made that fact really clear. So just as settlers came to Denver for mining or business, they also went down to southern Colorado and began farming east of Pueblo, Colorado, using irrigation from the Arkansas River. They also came to work in coal mines, who at that time were really desperate for men to come work for them. In 1885, Congress actually prohibited importation of foreign laborers under contract, but that didn't stop immigration and individual job seeking. Coal mines and steel mills were actually so desperate that they hired headhunters who would go to immigration ports in New York, New Orleans, and Galveston, Texas, and stop men leaving boats and offer them a job right on the spot with money to travel to Colorado. They even advertised in foreign newspapers, offering money to travel and accommodations for them and their entire family. Steel was also huge for a time. Pueblo was known as Steel City, or the Pittsburgh of the West. Many of these immigrants to southern Colorado were Italians, and a large portion of them were Sicilians, because high taxes and poverty was pushing them out of Italy and Sicily at that time. In Colorado, they settled in the Italian community of Pueblo, known as Smelter Hill, and also, curiously, it's known as Goat Hill because some people there owned goats. Trinidad, Walsenburg, Canyon City, and the small town of Aguilar became the heart of the coal industry in Colorado. Company towns were set up all around these areas as well, and they were what you would really imagine a company town would be. What company towns were were worker housing constructed by the company that they worked for. Entire little towns with crappy little shanty buildings, community water pumps, outhouses, and even small little shops and schoolhouses that were all run by the company that they worked for. So basically you go to work and then within the same compound you go to your house that's also owned by the company you work for. Oftentimes, these places had no running water individually in each um, house, and they also had no electricity. And companies would even take everything a step further and make their own company currency called Scrip. And then they would pay their employees only in that currency so that employees had to purchase goods from the company store that accepted that currency, and they often sold items two to three times more expensive than a normal store would have sold those items for. Scrip would often be sold um, at 15 to 25% discount within dealings within the community in order to obtain actual cash. So because of all of this nonsense, many families lived off of their own small vegetable gardens, dairy cow and chickens, and the occasional goat. If they had a particularly good cow or goat, they would sell the milk to nearby company towns, and thus small little, a small little economy just between the families got going uh, behind the backs of these companies, giving out scrip as payments. And people had a really strong sense of community, and they helped each other out a lot. And life was this really hard grind every single day. Hopeful immigrants who expected to come to America and make lots of money soon saw the dark and terrible reality of coal mines and steel mills and scrip. That is, until they figured out another way to make money, and that was crime. The most popular crime for the goal of obtaining money was extortion. And here in southern Colorado, amongst worn-out company towns and a good deal of animosity towards those companies who 
made money off of the labor of immigrants, paid with almost useless fake money. Extortion and crime took off like wildfire. So whether or not this crime was actually organized by any kind of central entity is really unclear. Despite no proof of any kind of Black Hand society itself operating in Pueblo, Colorado, Black Hand threats were a common occurrence in Colorado from around 1900 to Prohibition era. Fear of the Black Hand was incredibly common. So what were some of these threats? A teacher named Alvin Powell in the town of Bula, Colorado, received a threat from the supposed Black Hand stating that he was too strict with the punishment of his students, of all things. So he decided to ignore the threats, and one night while the teacher was working in his garden, two shots were fired near his head, missing him. His wife was so fearful for their lives that the family packed up and left town. In a different story, a 23-year-old woman named May Allen received a letter with a sketched black hand at the bottom telling her to stop keeping company, with a young man in the town, and that ceasing to do so would result in her death. Police suspected that the letter came from a jealous rival of May, and no report is provided about whether or not she actually heeded this warning or if she survived it. A man in town named Arthur Chubb was threatened with a letter from the supposed black hand and told to divorce his Italian wife because he himself was not Italian. No follow-up article mentions if he went through with the divorce or not. Um, several wealthy Italian citizens... There were, in fact, several wealthy Italian citizens of Pueblo that were used to receiving extortion letters from the Black Hand, and some of them went as far as to actually make regular deposits to this unknown entity for fear of threats being followed through. Steel workers also received threats, particularly ones who were managers. One foreman named John Thompson received a threat to fire a worker that no one else at the, the steel mill liked. So it, it got kind of silly at points. And so life just went on like this in Pueblo. Some people paid, other people fled town. One man who fled was a wealthy farmer named Luca Zito, who was told to leave $1,500 in a black bag that would be hanging from a fence post. He refused to pay and refused to try to find the letter writers and sold his farm for $10,000 in haste at a loss to himself and just went up and moved back to Italy. A local tailor both refused to pay and leave after a note was pinned to the door of his shop from the black hand demanding $5,000 be put into a box hanging from a tree south of Pueblo. The tailor thought the note was a joke because he didn't have anything close to $5,000 or the means to get it. And there are no reports that have ever surfaced in the newspapers that this tailor was actually killed for refusing to pay or flee. And elsewhere in Colorado, such ridiculous threats were being made. For instance, a sheriff in Silverton was told to beware, and that's all the note said, in a note. And in Denver, the editor of a Catholic monthly Western Home Journal was told to stop trying to hurt the working man by writing against them in his magazine or face death. And nothing ever came of that threat either. There was even evidence of non-Italian scammers using the black hand to bolster their scams. John Stanford and Louis Stein were arrested in New Mexico in connection with writing extortion letters, signed the black hand, and Louis Stein confessed to doing so. But it wasn't all just silly empty threats and small-time scamming. 
Sometimes these threats were in fact followed through with, such as the case of Martino Toronto when Dynamite demolished the sidewall and entire front of his grocery store after he failed to pay. Law enforcement tried to track down as many of the extortionists and violent offenders as they could, but most of the community down in southern Colorado refused to talk to the police about it, just completely out of fear. Police said that they faced a brick wall of silence and that they made little progress in any investigation. And things got particularly serious when C.L. Cooper, the editor of the Trinidad Advertiser, received this letter in 1907. To the Trinidad Advertiser, you will please publish this for the benefit of society. My name is Nicolini. I am an Italian. I murdered Mr. Wilson of Cedarhurst, a mining town 20 miles north of here. I got only $70. I'm not sorry that I murdered him either. He should have had more money than that on him. It is a lot of trouble to kill a man for a few dollars. This will be the 17th man I have killed since I left Italy. This man calling himself Nicolini also claimed to have murdered M. Randy Shine and stole $1,600 from him, and he said that Jesse James could not hold a candle to the atrocities that he had committed. He listed several names of people who were targets to be killed, and police did locate the body of the Mr. Wilson in the letter and could not locate Mr. Randy Shine or his family, so no one knows what happened to poor Mr. Randy Shine. A man named Camilio Cesario was stabbed to death in a bar after brandishing a broken beer bottle against a man trying to get money from him. After stabbing Camilio and wiping his bloody knife on his pant leg, witnesses said the man uttered an oath they thought was commonly used by the Black Hand and then fleeing. The Black Hand was also known to act out against its own so-called members if they felt that they had been wronged. In one case, a goat rancher named Joe Maniscolco was tortured and murdered for his perceived transgressions. In 1908, his body was discovered three and a half miles northeast of a mining camp. His right hand had been severed, and the flesh on his right arm had been completely peeled off, evidently while he was still alive. Joe's brother told police that they had been members of the Black Hand while still in Sicily, and that it was well known that traitors would have their right hand severed at the wrist and the flesh scraped off of their arm before being stabbed in the heart. A coroner actually could not find any stab wound on Joe, possibly indicating that they had actually just left him out there to die of blood loss after torturing him. The two brothers had ignored their allegiance to the Black Hand and been preparing to leave the area when Joe went missing. His brother was so angry over the death, he named several Italians in the area as members of the gang, including three women. No indication is given about what happened to the brother after this, but he presumably fled and saved his family. There also isn't any indication um, that the people who were named were even tracked down. 35-year-old rancher Domenico Trongala was found dead near his flock of goats with a bullet hole through his head and one through his groin. Powder burns on the tree near where he was from the gun going off indicated that he was ambushed from behind the tree. I have no idea how they figured that one out. Um, a few months after this murder, two men, Sam Minatello and Rafael Greco, were arrested for the crime, and it was revealed that Domenico had gotten angry at Sam Minatello 
one of his killers because he provided false information to the police about Joe's death. Joe, the dude, the poor dude whose skin was peeled off. Domenico had tried to attack him and he was physically disabled and couldn't defend himself. San Minatello then enlisted the help of Rafael Greco to enact revenge, attacking Domenico while he was out with his goats and shooting him in the groin and then the head. However, scores of witnesses came out to say that the two murderers had actually been working in a mine far away during this time, and both of the men walked free. It was difficult, as you can see, for police to determine which murders were done by blackhanders or done by feuding Italians and Sicilians. Often when a body was found as the result of a murder, no one in town wanted to talk about it or provide any information, even if the victim was their own close family member. Other cases were more clear-cut, as is the case of Sam Falcone and his brother Tony Spinozzi, who operated a heavily mortgaged ranch, and they were incredibly desperate for funds to pay for the mortgage payments. They enlisted the fear of the Black Hand to try to extort money from another Sicilian named Tony Santani. Police became involved and followed Tony Santani to the drop-off point, and they laid in wait for the perpetrators to come pick up the money. Sam Falcone arrived to pick up the money, and police ambushed him, resulting in this spectacular gun battle in which 50 shots were fired, leaving Sam Falcone dead. The police wanted to get his body buried and everything completely swept under the rug, so they interred him in Mountain View Cemetery under a fake name. They told the owner of the cemetery that it was a young dude from Kansas that they were burying there, and they issued a statement that Sam Falcone's body had been sent back to Philadelphia. And up north in Denver, Black Hand gang activity terrorized the streets. One man who worked as a janitor for the Equitable Building came forth to tell police that he had been hounded for months by the gang, demanding money and also being shot and beaten during this time. He said he was one of the scores of people in Denver being bled by this gang, and he was fed up enough to give them names at risk of his own death. Using this information, Denver police immediately went and arrested Francisco Stanzioni, Philip Drago, John Nicoletti, and Mario Crisafulli. All of these men had knives, and one man actually had a list of the wealthiest Italians in Denver in his freaking pocket. A letter received by a Puebloan named Michael Rossi in 1911 was of particular importance because it referenced being from a society of people rather than one individual. It demanded that $2,000 be brought by Michael Rossi to a Salt Creek location and also said, quote, I will dig out your heart with my rifle. I will shoot you and your children and I will drink your blood. I will shoot you, understand? Rossi was the father of five children and took the threat seriously. Within an hour, his entire family had fled the city. This letter to Michael Rossi spurred new interest in the Black Hand as an actual organized gang with a leader, and before long, a possible leader was actually identified as Sam Pagano, whose body was found near a furnace in the steel mill. He didn't work at the steel mill, though, and it was assumed that he had donned steel workers' clothes and snuck in to get a payment from one of the other workers. Bolstering this theory that Sam Pagano was somewhat of a kingpin was the fact that he apparently had plenty of money but no job, and he was seen loafing around town at saloons and businesses every single day. He would also leave Pueblo quite a few times for periods of time 
and always alter his appearance by shaving off of his beard and then letting it grow back when he returned. He was 32 years old when he was murdered by unknown people, and his death didn't bring relief to the community, but more fear of retaliation. And they were right to be fearful because the strange and unsolvable murders of Italians in Pueblo continued. In 1919, Dominic Pusateri, his wife, and four children returned home from an Italian wedding and were greeted by a wall of bullets. Five bullets hit Dominic, killing him, four hit his wife, killing her, and one went through the kneecap of his 12-year-old daughter. An infant being carried by his wife was unharmed as her body fell dead on top of the baby. All of the children were left there after watching their parents be shot to death. The body of 35-year-old Tony Cardinelli, another steel worker, was found near Walter Brewing Company in Pueblo. He had been struck on the top of the head with a pickaxe. He and his wife had four children. The police suspected Black Hand involvement in these murders, but there was almost no clues to go by and no motives for any of this could be unearthed. Did they owe money? Was it revenge for another crime? The murder of Dominic Pusateri and his wife in particular, in front of their four children, went down in history as one of the most brutal in Pueblo's history. Black Handers only represented a small portion of the Italian community, and the rest were left to live in fear and anger over these murders being committed in their communities, and many were forced to comply with the extortion. So fearful was much of the Italian community at this time that they refused to help police who were only greeted with what they called a sphinx-like silence when trying to get information. However, as the years drug on, only one thing put an end to the extortion racket. And that was a new and better way to make money. Prohibition began in 1920 and bootlegging swiftly overtook extortion as the money-making crime of choice. And the Black Hand Society gave way to the Mafia, which had a continued presence in Colorado history, in which I will undoubtedly discuss more in future episodes. And that's the terrible Black Hand of Colorado. I have a handful of pictures associated with this, and they'll be up on my Instagram at Colored Red Podcast for your viewing pleasure. And I'll be coming at you at the end of this month with a very bizarre murder that I'm not sure who's heard of because I was stunned to hear about this murder. So it should be a good one for Halloween. And until then. Mm-hmm.